are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. I'd like to bring your attention this evening to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we return to this book where we come to the beginnings of all things. And Genesis chapter 2 is really where Scripture is zooming in from the scope of all of creation in chapter 1 now to humankind in chapter 2. We're zooming in on what is humankind? What were we made for? What is our purpose? And so we begin, or this evening we look at verses 8 through 14. Genesis is that first book in the Bible, the Bible of 66 books. We come to the first, the beginning, where it started. So hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 2, reading verses 8 through 14. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put a man, the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made it to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Last time we were together looking at the few verses preceding this, we looked at mankind, how mankind was specially created by God, both body and soul. We're physical and immaterial beings. We are made, both body and soul, in God's image. We're made to reflect God, and we are made to commune with God. And so here, this passage has turned our attention to the garden in Eden that place where God put this image bearer of his so that they would dwell with him, so they would know him, that they would have life with him. And I think sometimes I have to remind myself when we come to passage like this, well, why does this matter? Why does the Garden of Eden matter? Because this is something that happened in the past. We don't live in the Garden of Eden now. Garden of Eden, maybe uh, we, we remember better on flannel graphs from Sunday school when many of us were kids. These pictures of trees and fruits and animals and people without clothing, covered in just the right spots. This is often what Eden is in our mind. But I think there's many reasons for us to consider it. It's not just a fairy tale. It's not just some historical relic that we are evaluating. So why does it matter? It's God's word, right? For, for, For one, this is God's word. God is telling us something important. And so because it's in God's word, it's worthy of our Our attention. It shows us about the world God created. But even more than that, some of the why behind that is that 
the Garden of Eden isn't merely a historic tale of some far off land with no implications for us. It's not a once upon a time story that triggers a fairy tale that didn't really happen. It happened, yes, in the past, but it isn't something that's left in the past because the Garden of Eden represents now the hope of redemption. And it is the lens now that, that we can look through, that scripture looks through to point us forward to the restored creation that is promised. The Garden of Eden has become a thematic idea that repeats itself through all of Scripture. Edenic motifs dominate the tabernacle and the temple, as we'll see a little bit of and scratch the surface this evening. The prophets speak of of the promise of this new Edenic existence for the people of God. And the imagery through Scripture continues to build and build and build, and it culminates with the, the final book of the Bible, The first and the last have have these wonderful pictures of Eden as Revelation shows us this new Jerusalem, this this Eden-like dwelling with God. And so the, the beauty of Eden that we're looking at this evening shows us what the heavenly new Eden will be like when God restores all things and consummates all things by his redeeming power. Man was created to enjoy life in God's presence. The Garden of Eden represents, if nothing else, life in God's presence. So remember that as we're reading that, as we're reading this this evening, as we're looking at this. This shows us life in God's presence. But now after sin, that life in God's presence can only come by faith in Jesus Christ. So let's unpack this a little bit. Our plan is to to trace out a number of these elements in this passage that highlight this theme of life. We're going to walk through these major elements that every single word is important, especially in these early chapters in Genesis. In all of Scripture, this is true, but particularly here, it's very tersely worded. Every word means something important. We're going to look at three major elements. First, the garden. Second, the tree of life. And then third, the river. These all show us life, to help us enjoy life in God's presence. So first, let's look at the garden, and we'll begin in verse 8. And we see that the Garden of Eden is first called a garden. A garden. This in the Hebrew has an understanding that it is an area that is hedged off, an area that is protected, an area that has a wall of sorts to protect it from the wild outside. So it has a clear a circumference. There's protection. It is a, a place that is safe. It's also a beautiful place. A garden is a place of great beauty, of, of, of lusciousness, of, of all things that are wonderful. Some translations will say uh, the paradise in Eden. And it's a, a wonderful word. It's a Persian loan word that originally meant a royal park. So it's the same idea of a garden, a royal park. This is a park created for a king that God's image bearers can enjoy. It's a beautiful garden. It's a sacred space. This is where God bestows his goodness on his people, on his creation, where God shows what life abundant is. It is here, this garden. It is a garden. It's located in a place called Eden, a garden in Eden. Eden is a homonym with a Hebrew word that means pleasure and delight. So I think it's fair to understand this. This is a garden in a place that's called pleasure. 
It's a pleasurable, a delightful, a glorious, a beautiful garden. And it seems like here, the garden is only a portion of this land of Eden. But this also is consistent with the call of Adam and Eve, as we saw in chapter one, their call to have dominion over the entire earth, to fill the earth and subdue it. So they were taking the four corners of this garden and they were to expand it to the rest of the world. This Eden that they began in is a place of lush vegetation. And scripture bears this out. Whenever Eden is used in Edenic images are used, it's, it's always lush, it's always fertile, it's well watered, it's a haven of joy and contentment all through scripture. And again, as I said, every word is important. And there's another phrase that's thrown in here that we often run over really quickly because probably we don't know what it means. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, in the east. This is the direction of the, the rising of the sun. This is the place that indicating life and hope, a new day dawns in the east. And so we see in the eastern part of the land of Eden, this garden has been placed, demonstrating hope, demonstrating life, demonstrating everything beautiful. And it is there, according to verse 8, there he put man. Genesis is underscoring for us the historicity of this place. He's naming places. As Moses is writing this, he's naming places, and we'll see other places later, starting in verse 10. He's naming places, locations, and laying it out this way, it can only be taken to be a real act of God, planting a real place and putting real people there. Because here, in verse 9, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food was there. Again, how can he, he, he say it? Again, it's abundant. It's beautiful. In every way, it is satisfactory. Can you imagine what a place like this would be? Really imagine it. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight was there. This is the epicenter of every kind of tree. Every wonderful plant was here in this garden. Oh, the beauty of the diversity of God's creation was all there in plain sight to enjoy and revel in every day by God's image bearers. And sustenance, everything that is good for food, every tree that was good for food was there. Sustenance was provided for God's image, for humanity. It was all in the garden for the benefit of the human race, that they would know life, that they would know what it was like in God's presence. Wonderful, blessed presence. So we have this garden, this lush image, this beautiful image where they were placed showing us life to its fullest. And then we move in verse nine where we have these two trees are placed there. So let's look at the, the tree of life. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Now, it's interesting. This is halfway through verse 9. The, the, the grammar changes here in the Hebrew, and it causes us to stop and to pause. From then on out, from, from earlier on, the, the verses previous, it was and this, and this, and this, and this, moving from, from one topic to the next, a sequence of events. But here we have stopping in the verse, middle of verse 9, a change in the grammatical structure. It stops, says, the tree of life was here. 
The grammar is causing us to stop and to consider this. What's being said here is important. It's out of the normal routine of the narrative. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to the side because we'll come back to that next time. But we're going to look at the tree of life for a few moments. These two trees, are the only two named trees here in this account, are somewhat mysterious, even mythical, or maybe even magical to us, we might think. But they're not. These are real trees with real purposes. This tree of life is essential for understanding the essence of man's existence in the garden. Tree of life is named three times here in Genesis, four times in Proverbs, and then four times in Revelation. We have it here in the second chapter of the book, named. And then we have, again, the closing chapter, two chapters of the, book, of, of the entire Bible, named again. We have the Bible bookended with this idea, this image, this tree, the tree of life. And this tree was a constant reminder in the garden of what God had put man there for. Why did God make mankind? Why did he put them there? It was life. It was that they would know life abundantly, and this tree pictured that for them. The location is important. It's in the midst of the garden. I think it's better, I agree with the translations that say, in the middle of the garden. This is the centerpiece in the most prominent position in all of the garden. It's even more striking when we consider the fact that Ezekiel calls the Garden of Eden a mountain. I know Rob loves this point. The Garden of Eden was actually a mountain according to Ezekiel 28. And so here, what we have, what we may have, is a tree resting on the summit of the mountain for all to see. Because at the tops of the mountains is where God comes to dwell with his people. And there is where the tree is located, the place where you come to commune with God looking to him and trusting him, taking him at his word, you come to this tree at the top of the mountain in the presence of God. Reminded everyone in the garden everywhere that they were here for life with God. Life as image bearers. Life in this Edenic temple that God had made for them. Life in God's presence. Life with these great blessings and benefits. Let's just stop here for a minute and think. How unbelievably kind of God to do such a thing. There was nothing that necessitated him to create humankind. There was nothing that made him put us in such a glorious place like the Garden of Eden, but God did. What a beneficent, What a wonderfully glorious condescension of God that he would create man in relationship with him and his image with such wonderful physical blessings. This is a kind God. This is a loving God. There is none like him. In Proverbs, it speaks of wisdom being a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. This, again, image of abundant life. When you hold, take hold of wisdom, it is like a tree of life. You see the glories of life with wisdom. And then we come to Revelation. It's repeated four times. We read once earlier 
but this tree of life is held out as the greatest goal, the prize of humanity, because it pictures communion with God himself. Revelation 2, 7 says this, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The garden of God, this new Eden, the tree of life is there. The one who conquers and who conquers, but Christ himself. And so the one who conquers through our savior, Jesus Christ, is the one who eats the tree of life. And then Revelation 22 Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. This tree of life is for those whose robes are washed. And how is that robe washed? It is washed in the blood of the lamb who died to forgive us and to make us righteous and to bring us to the father. That we would commune with him as this tree of life so beautifully pictures. The tree of life, as it were, that is the future for all of God's people. We will behold a tree of life, but it is just a picture showing us communion with God himself. So the tree of life is here in the garden, showing us even the end, what our future hope is, communion with God. And then the third element here is the river. Starting in verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. This supports the claim that we have a mountain here. Eden is, is a mountain. The water's flowing out of Eden. It's flowing down from Eden, watering the garden throughout the garden and even going beyond the garden. And again, water is such a rich biblical image. We'd be here all night to trace it out through all of scripture. But what is there more basic to the sustenance of life than water itself? God here provides the water for his creation to flourish. And if you remember earlier in chapter two, water was the problem. Water was, was as it were, flooding the earth. And so God needed man, God put man in order to control the water on the rest of the earth, to fill the earth and to subdue it, and to control these floodwaters by building new dams and, and building streams and building rivers and channeling the water in the proper way so that all the world can be filled with this garden. But here, God had already made the river that provides life. Here, God was providing sustenance for the land and his people. And as we read earlier from Revelation, in chapter 22, that river of the water of life is bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. And again, if our imagery checks out, the top of the mountain, we have the tree of life. And also at the top of the mountain, we have the throne of God where the water is rushing down and filling the earth, bringing forth vegetation from the earth. The new Edenic Jerusalem has this same river that waters the whole land. And here there's four tributaries that come out of the one's main source, flowing to different regions of the earth. And now, based on these geographic names that we've read here, some of which are, are absolutely unknown to the scholars, many still have speculated where the Garden of Eden was. I think the most popular hypothesis is that it's north of the Persian Gulf, so somewhere around Kuwait. However, I'm not sure that we can have really any certainty, simply because of the fact of the flood that comes a few chapters later, 
that radically changed the topography of the earth. So even if pre-flood and post-flood, they were using same words to describe rivers, there's no way of knowing that it was actually physically the same river as there was pre-flood. So I'm not concerned trying to figure out where this was because after the flood, we can't know. And indeed, God has removed his presence from the garden anyway after sin. And so there is no reason for us to find it today. But these various regions display the diversity of the richness of God's kindness to Adam. We see verse uh, 11, this Pishon River, and it goes around this land called Havilah. And in this land, there's gold. This is the land that Adam was going to go and mine the gold and bring it back to Eden and make Eden even more beautiful with the gold that he found and mined. This also reminds us, though, later in Exodus, when God gives directions to build the tabernacle and later the temple, all of the furniture in the tabernacle and temple would be made of pure gold. And then, as we read earlier, the new Jerusalem is also made of pure gold. So you have these connections, these themes through all of Scripture. The, the next element here mentioned in, uh, in the land of Havilah, there's gold and there's bdellium. Scholars really have no idea what this is. But their best guess is that it's some kind of fragrant, aromatic substance. Maybe an incense or something like that. It was something that was likely flaky because the other time this word is used in the Bible is, is to describe the manna in the wilderness. The manna looks like bdellium. So it's probably something flaky and probably an aromatic fragrance, an incense, most likely. And then there's the onyx stone that's mentioned as well. And again, nobody knows exactly what kind of stone this really was, but it was a precious stone, a gem and the same word was used of the, of the two onyx stones that were placed on the high priest's shoulders. And on each stone, he had written six of the tribes of Israel that he would wear with him into the holy place, the most holy place in the, taber- in the tabernacle and later the temple. And here, as it were, on these, gold, on, these, on these gems, all of God's people were coming and adorning the holy of holies in God's presence. And Ezekiel 28 expands on this image of the gems in in Eden. It speaks of Eden there and and talks about every precious stone that was there. It says every precious stone, sardis and topaz and diamond and beryl and onyx and jasper and sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, gold, all of these things were there. So what we have in Genesis is just an example of the, the great, beautiful gems that were found in this place. And Revelation 21, as we, as we read earlier, repeats 12 rare stones, beautiful stones that describe the glory of the new Eden, the new creation. So we have these, 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 these different parts of the world that had these wonderful adornments for the garden, gold and bdellium and onyx stone. We have precious metal, perfume and incense and precious stones. All of these were adorning Eden, the place where God was dwelling with man. And so we're left with this impression. So you consider the garden, a tree of life, the river, this impression of richness and fullness and wonder. We can't use simple words to to describe what this was like. And so this beautiful picture is painted for us. 
The creational bounty and beauty is so magnificent. But here's the thing. The creational bounty and beauty was not designed to point to itself. The point of a glorious Garden of Eden, it was not just say, wow, look how great the Garden of Eden is. The point of a beautiful and glorious Garden of Eden is to show the loving presence of God. It was to adorn the dwelling place of God because it should be magnificent. It should be wonderful. It should be greater than your imagination. And so all of this was designed not just to make life wonderful for Adam and Eve, but so Adam and Eve would know the great God who made them and put them there. It was to adorn their communion with God. To show his loving presence to show them life, to show them extravagant life. Extravagant life is far more than rare stones and gold. Those things point us to something greater, communion with God himself. Or as Jesus said, he came that we would have life and have it abundantly. Beautiful picture of Eden is showing us a dim picture of what abundant life is like. And of course, as we'll come to in a few weeks or months' time, all of this was lost. Of course, all this, this beautiful place where Adam and Eve could live, the paradise was lost by their rejection of God, by their sin. And so the Garden of Eden is closed to humanity. Humanity could no longer have communion with God because they rejected him. But we know, as we've already said, the garden doesn't disappear from Scripture. Because God in his grace has provided a way back. And it is Christ. It is precisely why he said he came, that we would have life and have it abundantly. He's come to give us an even greater Eden than the Eden of Genesis 2. Because Adam and Eve and Eden, their status was subject to fall. They could have fallen, and of course they did fall. But the Eden that Christ takes us to is a place where we will never fall. There's no possibility of falling from communion with God. We will simply enjoy him in the bliss of his presence forever. And so we're waiting for this consummation. As our reading from Revelation showed us, this imagery is all over the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new Eden, the place where we will dwell, the place, as Peter calls it, where righteousness dwells. Eden shows us a tiny little glimpse of that. So Eden is not lost. Even though we lost it, God is at work bringing a new creation into the new Eden of which we get to partake. I want to put a fine point on this as we conclude with two applications here. And the first, I want us to think about the world because the world is looking for Eden. Make no mistake about it. The world is looking for an Edenic utopia. That's what the moral and the political movements of our day are looking for. They're looking for something like Eden. And they're trying to manufacture a way back to what they envision paradise to be. And they're doing this, I believe, because humans are wired to do so. I learned the term this week, animal natal honing. You heard of this? You know the idea, right? Sea turtles, when it's time for them to reproduce, They will travel hundreds of miles to go back to the place they were born, and that is where they reproduce. 
Salmon do the exact same thing. They will, they, will stra- they, they will swim upstream. They'll go hundreds of miles to the place they were born in order to reproduce. Birds and their migratory patterns, similar idea. They go to the same place year after year, thousands of miles. How do they do this? How do they know where to go? There's something hardwired in them. The scientists don't know how sea turtles and salmon do this. I don't know if it's, they're using smell and it's a particular smell that, they, that is imprinted in their brains when they're born that they know how to find that smell again. Or maybe it's some kind of geomagnetic imprinting. They don't know. But it was confirmed at birth. And from birth, they know how to find their homeland. And because we're made in the image of God, we were placed in Eden. We were meant for Eden. Every single human is looking for Eden looking for this Edenic utopia, but without Christ, Eden will never be found. Worldly efforts are looking for it in all the wrong places. They're even distorting what is good and what is right in order to find what they think utopia might be. They want to remove God from the equation and there is no Eden apart from him. So for the only only hope for the world who's so desperately looking for the rest of Eden, the rest that only can be found in this place of communion with God, the only hope for our world is Jesus Christ. And that's why, as Jim said, it's so important for us to love our neighbors and care about them enough to say, hey, do you know the hope of Christ? I can tell you're really searching for something to find meaning and satisfaction in life. I can tell you where it's found. It's found and the God-man who came and died. I know it sounds crazy, but this is true. He is bringing us back to Eden, an even better Eden than we can imagine. The only hope for the world is Christ. And our second application as we think this evening of our own lives as believers, heartbreak and suffering and sin, even now, leaves us longing for Eden. It does. This world is a a journey of longing to be home, longing to go back to that land where God is with us, but there's no going back. There's only looking forward. And God in his kindness has so so wonderfully given us this, this picture in the rearview mirror, dimly what this Eden used to look like, but he so clearly held out in front of us the hope that is ours. There's no weeping. There's no more crying. There's no more suffering. There's no more pain. There's no more sin. It's only the presence of God and his people and his creation and everything good and everything wonderful. So for eternity, this is what we get to experience and know and enjoy. So yes, we have life abundantly now. We have Christ now. We have a spirit now. Praise God. But it's only as though looking through a mirror dimly. And then the new Eden will be delivered by Christ to us when we see him face to face. So this picture of the first Eden is an encouragement to us. It's a small dim reflection. It's a snow globe picture of what the new Eden is going to be like, far greater, far grander, far more beautiful. It can never fall. To all of our groanings now, let it drive you to one place, 
All of your pain, all of your sin, let it drive you to one place, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Savior of sinners, the architect and builder of the greater, greater Eden that will soon be ours to dwell with God forever. This Eden, we can't go back to it. There's nothing you can do in your own strength that'll bring Eden. But we can look to Christ, the one who has promised he's coming soon. So let us look to him with patience and hope and joy. Let's look to him in prayer. Gracious Father, we desire that the new Eden would come soon. That indeed our Lord Jesus Christ would return quickly so that we would be able to experience to the depth of our being, both body and soul, the presence of our great God. And what communion with you, undefiled by sin and our own frailty and fallenness will be like. So we pray that you would give us patience, perseverance, long-suffering, and love for our neighbor in this life as we set our eyes on that heavenly city waiting for our Savior to return. Oh Lord, we look to you with great hope, thanking you that you are at work even now. So be at work in the midst of our groanings and our sufferings and our pain and our sin, that you would bring us home to glory. In Christ's glorious and precious name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.